What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, the leading macro risk management advisor. In this conversation, we talk about what's going on in the macro economy, what's happening in the financial markets, how Darius is looking at various metrics, and also what you at home should be thinking about as you invest your capital. I really enjoyed this conversation with Darius, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group. With a dedicated focus on institutional payment services, BCB Group provides business banking, cryptocurrency, and foreign exchange market liquidity for many of the world's largest crypto-engaged financial institutions. BCB business accounts allow businesses to load fiat currency and cryptocurrencies for payments, operations, and trading purposes. BCB's clients can trade FX and cryptocurrencies quickly and at scale with market-leading value. BCB's Blink Network is the European crypto industry's first instant settlements network and one of the first real-time payment networks of its kind to allow free real-time transactions across fiat and digital currencies. BCB's vision is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. You can find out more by visiting bcbgroup.com slash pomp today. Again, if you want to learn more, go to bcbgroup.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all of your devices, making it easier to send, receive, and exchange over 150 or more crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. But the fun doesn't stop with staking and trading. They recently launched a new NFT marketplace where you can buy and sell your favorite NFTs on the Solana network. By partnering with the popular NFT platform Magic Eden, they're offering the full Monty on verified collections with more added every single day. Ready to check it out for yourself? Run, don't walk, over to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download today. Again, if you want the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet, go to exodus.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is brought to you by Coinbase Wallet, your key to the world of crypto. Crypto wasn't made to just buy, sell, and hold. With Coinbase Wallet, you can do so much more. Collect more NFTs, earn more with DeFi, and trade more than 4,000 tokens. Whether you're looking to play, stake, spend, or just explore a trending new protocol, Coinbase Wallet is your key to more. Longtime holders already know that wallets are a must-have if you want complete control of your crypto. That's why Coinbase Wallet makes self-custody simple while providing the safety and security of the most trusted name in crypto. Visit coinbase.com wallet to learn more. Again, that's coinbase.com slash wallet and learn more today. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. My friend Darius Dale, how are you? I'm uh, I'm good, man. I'm good personally, but I'm concerned about these markets here, dude. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> Yesterday, the Federal Reserve, 75 basis point hike after they leaked it. They went to the Wall Street Journal and leaked it. Uh, <laughs> what's your thought process? Is it, yeah, is it is it a leak if you go directly to the world's widely watched source and tell them very specifically? No, I'm not sure. But uh, Say, hey, uh, I want to tell you something, but don't tell them that I told you, but just write the article. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. By the way, why are you wearing a suit? Oh, well, uh, a suit? Uh, I'm glad that you asked, my friend. Uh, we're in a bear market, and this exact suit and this exact tie 
defeated the 2018 bear market. And I'll be wearing this suit and tie every day until we defeat the 2022 bear market. I love that. Look at that scruff, man. Yeah. Oh my God, we're getting old. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, got a little less hair, but still got the same suit and tie. That's all that matters. Absolutely. All oh, right. Dude, so what's going on with the Federal Reserve? What, how do you read into uh, their 75 basis point hike rather than the 50 basis points they had been saying previously? So, uh, yeah, let's get into the Fed yesterday. So uh, overarching takeaway is that this is the most hawkish Fed meeting we've seen since 1994. Um, we will be talking about this 25, 30 years down the road because it's really the first time really since then uh, that the Fed has effectively confirmed that they're comfortable with sending the economy into a recession to defeat inflation. You can make the case that they weren't even as hawkish back then because Greenspan was sort of a uh, mums the word, generally speaking, with respect to forward guidance. That's more of a Bernanke, Yellen, Powell Fed uh, dynamic. So you could also make the case that this is probably the most hawkish Fed meeting since going back to Paul Volcker uh, in the early 80s. Um, and it's very clear from my perspective um, that there's going to be a significant reduction in liquidity from financial markets over the medium term uh, until the Fed sees the whites of the eyes of inflation's back breaking completely. When you start to think about uh, their current positioning, do they believe what they're saying? And I want to uh, give you a very specific example. They claim that they are taking this aggressive stance. Some mm -hmm. may say that they are trying to uh, posture kind of in a Paul Volcker, uh, we're serious about taming inflation. We're going to raise interest rates. But then on their own projections, they believe inflation is still going to be over 5% at the end of the year. They don't think that it'll even be sub 3% by the end of next year. Why are they saying they're being so aggressive, but still telling us, hey, six months from now, you're still going to have five plus percent inflation, which will be compounded on top of 7% inflation in December of 2021? Yes, because uh, let's not forget that this is a Fed who I think deep down at its core believes that inflation is still somewhat transitory, at least that there are transitory components uh, to the inflation that we're observing. Uh, obviously, if you think about food and energy prices, you know, roughly 10% on a three-month annualized basis for, or sorry, 12% on a three-month annualized basis for food, 50% on a three-month annualized basis for energy, the Fed is, is, is convinced and always will be convinced that that kind of inflation is, you know, generally speaking, transitory because it's not sticky. However, as we talked about on this program and have been talking about this program for six, nine months now, that there are sticky components of inflation, particularly when you look at something like the Atlanta Fed sticky CPI, you know, roughly 7% on a three-month annualized basis, fastest since the early 90s, and then median CPI, 6.4%, uh, fastest on a three-month annualized basis, fastest rates ever. You know, there are parts of inflation that are, are very sticky. And, 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 you know, one thing I think we have to remember as investors, because again, everyone talking about inflation right now, you know, at least from an investment perspective, you know, has not lived through a serious inflation shock before. You had to go all the way back to the 70s and early 80s uh, to get to, 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 to that time, to that part of the time series. And so the reality is inflation is a sticky disease. It gets worse unless it's getting better. And what he's effectively saying is we're willing to do more and more and more to get it to go get better, but it's not going to get better overnight because, again, there are some very sticky components to it uh, that are already kind of in the pipeline. So when you think about this, we've seen asset prices falling. Will they uh, wave the white flag if asset prices fall enough, or do they just not care at all whatever happens to those asset prices? Oh, no, they care because ultimately there is a le legitimate feedback and response mechanism between asset park markets and our economy. So uh, there's a couple of statistics I'll throw at you to support that. Um, U.S. economy, you know, while we're down from a, a consumer balance sheet perspective in terms of overall debt, 
private non-financial sector debt has actually risen in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, uh, not as quite as high as it was prior to the financial crisis, but it's still pretty elevated at about 160% of GDP. And the reason that matters is because we also have a very financialized economy. Um, when you look at private uh, non-financial sector debt, in terms of the percent that is warehoused on bank balance sheet that isn't you know, turning over, it's you know, going to be sitting there to maturity versus that's about 30% versus the amount of, of uh, private sector, non-financial sector debt um, that is sort of warehoused by non-bank participants, shadow banks, hedge funds, asset managers, et cetera, that at 70%, it tells you that what happens in the markets will have a material impact on the debt dynamics of the economy, not just issuing new debt, but also rolling over existing debt. And that is an issue in terms of, um, you know, uh, th that will cause, you know, the significant tightening of financial conditions will cause and have a material adverse impact on the growth cycle, which ultimately feed back into the inflation cycle by reducing demand. So this is what the Fed wants. They just don't want too much of it. But yesterday we learned that it's for the first time that this is a Federal Reserve that actually wants that outcome. And so that, that's, a, that's a pretty significant uh, move. When you look at things, I think this morning, U.S. housing starts, uh, the forecast was minus 1.8%, if I remember correctly, and it ended up coming in at like minus 14.4%. Just like something so egregiously off from the forecast, do you expect us to see more and more uh, inaccuracies in forecasts because now we're getting into a uh, kind of uncharted water? We're getting into period of uh, so much complexity in the global macro environment that's moving that it's going to be very difficult for many of these economists and, and forecasters to actually be accurate? Yeah, so there's two things I would say about that. The first is, we should expect more very uh, more significant downside surprises to housing data over the medium term. Uh, just going back to what I just talked about in terms of how financialized the economy is, obviously the housing sector is one of the most financialized components of the, the, the economy. And we're currently undergoing the biggest shock in mortgage rates, at least as far back as we can get the data since going back to the late 90s, ever. It's bigger than the shock we experienced in 06, ahead of the, um, the global financial crisis, ahead of the housing bust and downturn. Uh, it's bigger than the shock we experienced in 2013. It's bigger than the shock we experienced in 2018. We're talking about a 3.2 uh, sigma move, 3.2 Z-score on a trailing three-year basis in terms of the move we've seen in mortgage rates from basically 3% all the way up to 6%. So that's going to cause a significant slowdown in housing market activity. The number two point I want to make in response to your question, I think you know, there is legitimate risk that we could be in recession right now. I mean, if you look at the Q1 GDP report, and again, now most of the, the negative uh, move in the Q1 GDP report was did, uh, as a function of inventories. Real final sales were very robust in the first quarter. But again, we had a negative overall headline GDP print. And you look at something like the Atlanta Fed's uh, nowcast for the second quarter, we're basically at zero. And, and it could obviously get worse you know, once we get the updated forecast after we got the uh, Rancid uh, uh, retail sales data and, and obviously housing data today, we could be currently sitting here in the second consecutive quarter of negative headline GDP. And typically what happens when you're in recession is that the revisions to economic statistics tend to be very, very aggressive. Um, they tend to be much, much uh, larger than your traditional revisions on a month to month, quarter to quarter basis. And so Again, I don't want to make a headline and say I think we're the economy's in, in recession because, again, real final sales are still trending quite positively. But certainly if we are in recession, um, you're definitely going to see some significant revisions and your significant downside surprises 
uh, in a lot of the reporting of economic statistics. Can you talk a little bit about the disconnect maybe between the official metrics and then uh, how people on the ground actually could be experiencing recessionary uh, like effects where it's wage growth, it's increasing costs, they're, you know, slowing down investment, there's less uh, hiring going on. Like, how do we actually decipher what's happening in the quote unquote real economy versus, hey, did we actually get the true definition of a recession uh, in the metrics? Yeah, so uh, let me start that. Let me answer that in reverse. Great question. But you're always on fire with the questions. The, in reverse, you know, I think it imp- is important to define what a recession is, right? There's different definitions of recession. There's a technical recession, which is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. Uh, from an intent for, uh, there's also the sort of more qualitative definition of recession, which is a significant pullback in animal spirits, uh, you know, particularly uh, from the corporate sector, where corporates, you know, are laying off, uh, laying off workers and and really doing what they can to sort of um, to sort of protect profits, um, and that usually has a significant uh, adverse outcome on, on on growth statistics. And then there's a third, uh, also qualitative um, explanation um, that's part of the NBER, which is the, uh, the the official body who dates recessions in the U.S. There's a third qualitative definition, which is a, a significant downside deviation uh, from trend in, in overall output and a significant downside deviation from trend in overall employment. So. Um, obviously, those two qualitative definitions kind of uh, line up with each other. I tend to sit more on the qualitative camp. Who gives a damn about two consecutive quarters of, of, of negative GDP that, you know, those can be gamed from an accounting standpoint. What really matters is how far and how quickly you deviate from the trend in output and employment. And so you know, in terms of uh, walking you through how that might look like on the ground, I think the first thing that matters is there's been a significant reduction in, in, in consumer confidence, particularly when you look at the University of Michigan survey, where obviously uh, a below trend from a uh, conference board survey as well. But when you marry that up to the uh, significant reduction that we've seen in, 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 in CEO confidence as well, you know, we're now we're sort of in the, pro- phase, pro- the point of the process where there is a crisis of confidence that is very much being observed. And that crisis of confidence, uh, let's, let's take the crypto uh, sector uh, as an example, that crisis of confidence can filter the economy in a lot of different ways, right? Like, let's say the you know, price of Bitcoin stays down here around 20,000 or goes even south of 20,000. What you're going to start to see is more layoffs at places like Coinbase, et cetera. You're going to see less advertising spin by companies like FTX and Coinbase, et cetera. And you're going to have Matt Damon flying to Vegas, you know, less frequently. And then the hotels in Vegas where he's spending money at, at the casino are going to, you know, start to lay off staff and workers. And this is how it works. And now you magnify that and multiply that across the economy. That's how you get a recession. What typically happens in a growth slowdown is that there's one, two, maybe a few connected sectors that are all sort of, you know, experiencing real negative dynamics. A recession is when you're seeing that broad based across the economy, across multiple sectors. Yeah, we've got this uh, tweet uh, that Zero Hedge put out that said the last and only time the S&P was down 10 of 11 weeks, Nixon was about to end the gold standard and kill Bretton Woods to, quote, fix the U.S. inflation problem. And we've got the, uh, the the chart that shows 10 out of 11 weeks for the S&P to be down. We then get uh, coming off of the gold standard. How severe do you think that the solution is going to be here? Is it simply something where they can use their current tools of uh, interest rates and, and quantitative tightening and get this under control? Or will we see some kind of very, very severe action to try to get inflation under control? Uh, well, it depends. If, if inflation continues surprising to the upside in the way that it did, uh, last Friday in the May CBI report, which we obviously we, we presage very well in this program and other programs, then yeah, they're going to get incrementally draconian because what to me, 
And again, I think this is qualitative and you have to make a market call. Generally speaking, you got to make calls to make money in financial markets. When I hear Powell talk about inflation, particularly when I hear him talk about how inflation impacts low-income families, I'm telling you, I've been doing this boring-ass job for 13 and a half years, and I've never once heard any central banker from any place around the world, with the exception of Raghuram Rajan over at the Reserve Bank in India, talk about the impact of inflation on low-income consumers. To me, it seems like Powell understands just how damning and how recessionary the conditions already feel like for the lower income cohorts of our society. And so to me, I think this sort of, you know, the, their willingness to do whatever it takes from a financial tightening standpoint and from a growth reduction in growth standpoint to get to a situation where inflation is much lower and the economy is in a much more stable footing I think their willingness to do that is much higher than I think the average market participant believes, and we've thought that all year. When you think about uh, something like yield curve controls, we were talking yesterday to uh, Nick Carter, and he thinks that uh, that's on our horizon. How do you view that, and do you think that's something that we should uh, expect? Uh, Yield curve control would be on the horizon if inflation uh, became runaway. And the only reason I think yield curve control would be on the horizon if inflation became runaway is if the Fed allowed it to become runaway, right? The Fed, the Fed is ultimately responsible, at least from a monetary standpoint and just given how financialized the economy is, is ultimately responsible for doing something about inflation and they can do a significant amount about inflation, right? Let's, let's go back and you know one thing that the Fed, um, I, I sort of a lot of investors are chastising the Fed about, at least a lot of investors have similar market views that I do. They haven't talked at all about the <laughs> ridiculous amount of fiscal stimulus we dumped into the economy, not just domestically, but globally throughout the pandemic. And they also haven't talked at all about the sort of aggressive monetary easing that we saw, even despite we, you know, even despite the inflationary pressure that was building from a, from a, uh, you know, sort of a supply and demand perspective in terms of overly stimulating aggregate demand at a time where it was very clear that we were seeing a concomitant reduction in labor supply and ultimately a reduction in energy and agricultural supply as well. And obviously the geopolitical impacts from Russia, Ukraine are only making those last two dynamics worse. And so ultimately the Fed can do something about inflation. It looks like they want to do something about inflation, but if they chose not to do something about inflation and let inflation hang out at these very aggressive levels or even get worse over the medium to long term, then they will have to do yield curve control. But I don't think that's where we're headed because ultimately I think the Fed, um, at least now for now, seems like it has the resolve to, to get this to get the job done. So Nick's point, I think, was, uh, hey, they just can't increase interest rates above some threshold, whether that's 5%, 6%, whatever, or they'll bankrupt the United States. And his that's thought- That's not true. Okay, that's so explain, that's what I wanted to get to. Explain how high you think they could hike rates if needed. So let's not forget that the, one, the Federal Reserve uh, has a it's limited balance sheet, but it's also not just the Federal Reserve, right? There is also this thing called <laughs> regulation. Right, we could trap a lot of money in our in our ecosystem by, by changing the rules of the game in terms of how banks are allowed to operate both internationally and domestically. You know how we're allowed to sort of uh, transact from a, a cross capital, uh, cross border perspective from in the from the perspective of capital markets. They can do a lot of moving with dials and levers to effectively crowd money into uh, the treasury market, which is what they did going back to the regulations we saw in uh, in 2008, 2009. And then ultimately regulations changes we saw in 2015, 2016. So they have levers that they can pull without having to resort to something that looks like yield curve control, um, you know, from the perspective of the central bank. But again, I think, you know, to Nick, you know, I'm not saying Nick's wrong ex ante. We don't know anything about the future. No one does. But my point is, 
I, I think we're a long way away from even having to get there because ultimately they can they can they, there's ways in which they could they could uh, trap money into the into the U.S. Treasury market. So the U.S. is not going to default anytime soon. Is at the top of the global capital structure. If the U.S. defaults, it means that you, me, every business, every company, every country in the world likely would have defaulted first. When you think about uh, places with very high degrees of inflation, uh, take Argentina, others, uh, they start to put price controls in place. And we've obviously seen uh, a recent letter that was sent to a bunch of the oil companies saying, basically, you're greedy, stop raising prices. We saw the White House communications director recently say, you know, be a patriot, keep your prices low. (laughs) Um, What's going on? And like, should we expect price controls in the United States at some point in the future? So, so how stupid is that, right? Like you run a business, I run a business. Be a patriot, keep prices low. Well, it costs money, more money to run the business. I got to either pass on the cost to the ultimate consumer of the, the, the good or service that we're selling, or I have to have less profits or even negative profits. You're going to disincentivize people from uh, running businesses and producing incremental goods and supply of goods and services, which is what we need if you start instituting price controls. You know, we talked about this last week. Price controls are short-term, you know, uh, reward and from a, from a amelioration of price uh, change perspective, but they're guaranteed to give you higher inflation in the future because all you're doing is reducing the total amount of available supply on a lag, right? And so clearly, the, the what's causing inflation, what it's caused every inflation in the history of inflations since going back to Adam and Eve, and maybe even before that, if you guys watch uh, Ancient Civilizations on Amazon, which is great, by the way. It's always a mismanagement of supply or mis- uh, misalignment of supply and demand. You cannot have an inflation without a misalignment of supply and demand. One or two of those curves have to shift in an adverse manner to have a sustained inflation. And that's clearly what we have right now. So one of the things uh, along that same line is the national average gas price, according to uh, AAA, is now five dollars. Uh, it's over five dollars. Uh, we've seen gas prices in California get as high as eight, nine, ten dollars in certain places. Um should we expect food prices to explode upwards even further if all of a sudden oil and natural gas prices are going up? Like, is there a connectedness between uh, food and, uh, and energy prices? Yes, that is correct. So uh, great question as well. So uh, historically speaking, you know, what you typically have is one, whenever energy prices are going up, it's a, it's a, it's a, a intermediate good for pretty much every other good in the world. It's hard to generate goods without, you know, ener- you know energy as an input. Um, and obviously petrochemicals, et cetera, um, for plastics, et cetera. Um, but there's also energy, you know, is, is it part of the price for something like nitrogen, which is obviously used um, to, you know, to produce uh, agricultural goods. And so when you think about, you know, this nitrogen fertilizer we have, the ongoing uh, trending rise in energy prices, those two factors alone are likely to continue to keep upward pressure on food prices, at least until we find some amelioration there. Um, and this is why historically, when you go back and you look at recessions, a lot of times, you know, more than 50% of the time, the price of energy, crude oil, tends to peak in the actual recession. Like, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You actually, it, it usually just goes higher and higher and higher and higher until it ultimately destroys demand for itself, which is usually the last thing, the last category of goods that we consume where demand gets destroyed, right? You, you can't not go to work. You can't not eat. And so ultimately, the price will rise up until the point where uh, supply and demand are in balance. And ultimately, that, that is, um, you know, that's one of those factors that causes a recession. 
How do you think about compounding increases in prices? So I mentioned, you know, last December, the number was 7% inflation. They were still conducting asset purchases at the time. Uh, And this December, they think that it'll be at 5%. So let's just say those numbers are right. We now are getting into kind of multiple years of high year-over-year growth. But that's not just of the CPI number. Obviously, there's things that make up CPI in terms of whether that's gasoline, food, uh, at home, out of the home, whatever. Like, how did, What's like a rule of thumb or a framework to analyze now when we get into these compounding and introduces things like base effect uh, to have people understand what exactly is happening to the price of goods? Yeah, so there's, um, there's, there's a few ways you can get around that just statistically from a mathematical perspective. So um, if you want to understand sort of um, how inflation's compounded over the last, you know, two years or three years, you can look at what we call on Wall Street something like a two-year stack, which is just the, the two-year average uh, growth or inflation rate, you know, in that particular period. Um, you know, it's, you know, Q1 or, you know, let's call it the last month, et cetera. Or um, you can also do it on it from an index perspective, right? Like you can say, hey, look, since the end of 2019, we're going to index the inflation index, you know, the, the nominal, the raw inflation index, relative to, let's say, something like, uh, you know, the, the overall household income or disposable personal income. And then you could see what the cumulative change is over a period of over a longer period of time. You know, those, you know, if you put, do that, you know, for a long period of time in the pandemic, you saw actually an increase um, in, 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 uh, in, in private sector uh, disposable personal income relative to the index change in inflation. We are now very clearly cost, crossing that chasm in the wrong direction from the perspective of consumer income and consumer balance sheets. So now inflation from a cumulative perspective is really now starting to take its toll uh, on, on society and particularly on the lower income cohorts of society who can't, you know, can't make easy substitutions for their consumption goods and services, or more importantly, just don't have this, the size of the wallet to, to absorb uh, incremental consumption. When you start to think about um, jobs, we're near historic low unemployment. We were at, I think, 3.5%, 3.4% in uh, February of 2020. Obviously, that skyrocketed 6.6 million people a week. We're filing for first-time unemployment claims uh, at the start of the pandemic. It's come back down. We're at like 3.5% now. Uh, but when you go on Twitter, when you read headlines on these news organizations, it seems like there's lots of layoffs that have already occurred and, and more people are, are thinking that they could be coming. Should we expect unemployment to aggressively grow in America? Yeah, unemployment's not going to aggressively grow until we slow uh, economically aggressively. Now, our models are, are, have been, are calling for and have been calling for an aggressive slowdown economically starting this summertime. Um, and, and persisting throughout the, the fall and into the early part of next year. So um, by the end of that process, yes, we will start to see uh, a rise in unemployment and a reduction in overall, uh, in, 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 in total employment. But it's hard, you know, employment itself is a lagging indicator. It lags the broader rate of change cycle for growth. And so you typically need to observe that, that growth slowdown. What you're observing from a headline perspective is just sort of uh, what you know, we call from a, a behavioral economic standpoint, which is just, that's prospect theory. Um, you know, we anchor on negative news uh, because historically, you know, we, uh, our interpretation of negative news feels worse than our interpretation of positive news feels good. And so it's very easy to, to, to get anchored on, you know, when markets are having down days, the red on the screen, it's, you know, stories about layoffs, et cetera. Um, but the reality is the U.S. labor market added 390,000 jobs on a net basis in the most recent data point, in the most recent month, which is May. You know, that 390,000 jobs compares to an average of 190 jobs month over month, you know, in the five years ending in 2019. So we're basically running at about a double in terms of the pace of total employment growth, which is not something you're seeing on your screens every day. You're seeing obviously the layoffs, 
because you know those might be leading indicators for the cycle getting worse. But ultimately, I think what's likely to happen is that we have a cooling of labor market conditions and then eventually an actual outright deterioration if the Fed has to continue stepping its foot on the brake. Got it. And so when you start to think about uh, the best case scenario uh, for asset prices through the rest of this year, is your expectation that we go sideways to down and we continue with kind of aggressive Fed policies? Uh, or do you see some relief and potentially uh, could could stocks end the year up uh, or, or anything like that? So, uh, so a couple of things. I'll start by saying the most bullish scenario is having recession now that kills inflation that allows the Fed to get off this path. The worst scenario is the longer inflation stays hot, the more likely it is the Fed has to key stay on, on this path of, of very aggressive monetary tightening, which will keep you know, a, 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 you know, pressure on asset prices to you know, risk assets, Bitcoin, et cetera, to continue going lower in price. Um, you picked a hell of a day to wear that suit, by the way, because tomorrow is a OPEX Friday. Um, and for our friends at Spot Gamma, Brent Kachuba, who runs that, firm, that service, he's calling out that this is the chunkiest OPEX in terms of the size of overall puts that are likely to expire since March of 2020. When you go back to March of 2020, that marked a very significant low in, in risk assets, you know, multi-year low in risk assets um, in terms of removing all that exposure from the, uh, from the short side of the trade and causing dealers to unwind those bets. Now, what's obviously very different now is in March of 2020, you had the Fed basically get as aggressive to the easing side of the equation as they had ever done basically doubled its balance sheet overnight and kept it going with $120 billion of QE for, you know, for obviously way too long if you're talking about today's inflation. That is not the macro setup today. We are not at the bottom of the growth cycle. We're very clearly not at the bottom of the liquidity cycle. So I'm concerned that you might get a temporary bounce in risk assets associated with that OPEX, um, you know, that, that OPEX um, unwind um, that ultimately is to be faded, um, you, know, you know, let's call it in a few weeks or so. And then one thing, um, you know, finally, before we even end, I'm going to be doing a boot camp uh, with my friend Imran Laku, who runs Options Insight. If you want to understand some of these options markets dynamics a little bit better, because again, I think this is going to be a very important one, as I just mentioned, you want to understand these OPEX dynamics, options market dynamics, and ultimately how to use options to hedge your portfolio, um, we're, come join us for this boot camp. We're going to be doing it on July 7th through 9th. Again, it's Imran uh, Laku over at optionsinsight.com. Uh, so go check that out if that's something that's interesting of you, because I think it'll be very interesting over the next month or two. My last question for you, my friend, 75 basis point hike in June. They were supposed to do 50 in June, 50 in July. Uh, many people think that they have to remain aggressive. But Jay Powell yesterday talked about uh, 75 basis points won't be common. What happens in July? 50, 75, 100, 25? Does yeah, he so quit? I think if inflation behaves, it's going to be 50, right? Um, but if inflation stays doing you know, some version of what it's been doing, which is trending higher on a three-month annualized basis, it's going to be 75s and more QT, quantitative tightening, until, until the eyes can see. Again, this all boils down to how willing is the central bank you know, to, to, to basically do something about inflation and how quickly do they want to do it. And from my perspective, again, this is just my own interpretation based on you know, analyzing, not even analyzing, studying everything that these people say and have been saying throughout this entire process. From my perspective, it seems like they're, they're very concerned that they don't want to lose credibility of the Fed, and to, because once you lose the credibility of the Fed, the inflation genie, or disease, as I like to call it, is very much harder to treat. And ultimately, don't forget that Jay Powell is a human being. Do you really want to retire as the guy who let the inflation genie out of the bottle in the United States of America and, and abroad? No, I think he's trying to protect his legacy, and he's, and he's comfortable with having a mild to severe recession in doing that. 
Uh, this is if we got a recession, we don't have the debt dynamics in this economy from a private non-financial sector leverage perspective in terms of the buildup or the change in the debt service ratio that would cause something like the global financial crisis. It'll be a, it'll be a, a sort of short-lived recession that we can recover from and get to better times. And so I think that's ultimately the bet they're willing to make if you put a gun to their head, if they had to pick, you know, mild to, you know, recession over uh, continuation of inflation, they're going to pick mild recession. For sure. Where can we send people to find you on the internet? Absolutely, man. I appreciate that. Uh, at 42 Macro, come check out our website, come check out our research, uh, produce, uh, you know, what I think is some of the world's best research for, for every investor uh, and everyone gets all the same research. Uh, that, that tends to be an issue on Wall Street. Um, and then, so, and then if you can't afford it, um, the 42 Macro detail is my Twitter handle. I appreciate everyone for having me on and thank you. Uh, catch you next week. My friend, you are doing a, a fantastic job. Thanks for uh, keeping me educated. I dropped the uh, link in the chat there. Anyone who wants to go check out 42 Macro, highly suggest it. Let's keep praying. Let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, hey, I'll say this. Prayer is not a risk management strategy. 42 <laughs> Macro is a risk management strategy. Oh, <laughs> what a softball. All right, see you, buddy. Double salute. <laughs> see you guys. Later. Cheers, brother. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.